Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may concentrate our minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us to know how we use the Apostles' Creed, to see how it speaks to us today, to show us the right way of understanding you, the knowledge which is so important to our faith, and to see how we need to uh, really reap the real benefits of uh, understanding the Apostles' Creed in our life today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, if you uh, visit different churches, uh, you and I've been to a few, you'll notice that um, a lot of modern churches today have a very relaxed feel to it. A okay, very relaxed feel. And, uh, you know, you walk in, uh, everything is very attractive, very friendly, there's lots of singing. Uh, even if you don't sing yourself, uh, it doesn't really matter because the, the singing group is so good that they will do the singing for you. There's lots of audio-visual. Sermon is very entertaining. So if you wanted to really capture, uh, summarize the big idea of the modern church service, you'd say that the big idea is about entertainment. It is about passion and feelings and emotions. And I think that uh, it captures it really well. You can go to many modern churches today and the big idea is about entertainment, about feelings and emotions. Now this is really completely opposite to uh, my experience when I went to theological college in Australia. Because I went there and uh, I think once a week, or more than once a week, we used to go and attend the traditional Anglican prayer book service. Okay, now, uh, if you've never been to the traditional, I don't think they even have that in Singapore anymore, but it's like the most boring service you've ever been to in your life. Because basically you go in there and uh, you sing from the songbooks, you stand and read a psalm every service, you, uh, you do a lot of fixed responsive readings uh, directly from the prayer book, and there's usually a very long Bible reading and then a sermon. Now, if I were to characterize the big idea of that sort of service, then I would say that the big idea of that sort of service is about knowledge, it's about Bible knowledge. Because actually the Anglican prayer book was designed for a time where people didn't really have Bibles, and the whole idea was when people came to church on Sundays, you would fit in as much uh, Bible knowledge as you could into their minds as possible. So the whole idea is actually by the end of the year you, you would have read the whole, the whole book of Psalms if you just went to church every Sunday. Now whatever you say about the, the Anglican prayer book church service, uh, it is boring, it's very dry, but you really learn a lot. And I think that uh, today when you compare the Anglican church uh, prayer book service of the past, those centuries past to today, you see that actually many times in today's services the danger is because so many modern church services look to entertainment, passions, and emotions, uh, it doesn't lead to much Bible knowledge. People are very theologically and biblically illiterate. So many commentators today actually say that Christians in today's generation are the most ignorant, biblically, and theologically illiterate of any generation that ever lived uh, after Jesus Christ. And I think in many ways that's true. I've, I've met young Christians and I asked them, why do you become a Christian? They said, well, it just felt like the right thing to do. I remember going to a church service where next to me was a young man and uh, the pastor was preaching and he, he mentioned the book, uh, One Kings. And I noticed the guy next to me frantically looking for One Kings in his Bible, except he was looking in the New Testament. Right? So I was thinking, well, this guy really doesn't know his Bible very well because you know, obviously Kings comes from the Old Testament. But to my great surprise, after the sermon, this young man went up to the front to counsel people who had accepted Jesus Christ. So it shows you that actually many times today I've seen over and over again that young Christians in you know, many modern churches don't understand 
the Bible or don't understand Christianity very well. But in the early church, knowledge was always very, very important. In fact, if you look at the, the Bible, if you look at the early church and church history, knowledge in two ways formed the bedrock of the Christian faith. And, and those two ways, or two types of knowledge were, you needed to know historical knowledge, knowledge about what God had done in this world, knowledge especially about what God had done through Jesus Christ. And the second type of knowledge which is a theological understanding of what God had done in history. Right? So it's not just enough to know the historical knowledge of what God had done, but people also needed to know the theological understanding of how do we make sense of what God has done in this world, especially in Jesus. And that's how the creeds came about, right? So if you look in the bulletin, we're looking at the uh, point, next point. What is the creed, right? There are many creeds. Okay, now basically a creed is like a summary of the Christian faith. It's like a, a, a condensed reader's digest form of the core fundamental Christian beliefs. Okay, the, it's like a formula which captures the core Christian faith. Now we can always say, ah yeah, you know, who needs these creeds, right? I mean, what's the point? Why don't we just read the Bible? But from the very earliest times, from even the apostles' time, uh, just after the death of Jesus, people were already putting together creeds to formalize what was the real bedrock of Christian understanding. So if you look up here, okay, I've got lots of slides today, so you can write down quickly what I'm writing down. Uh, I've put up here. But if you look here at, uh, oh, early on, Ah, that's right, this one. No, right, number one, number one. Yeah, that's right, number one. Philippians chapter 2, right? You can see right in Philippians chapter 2, and I know we've studied Philippians before, but we didn't make a big deal of this. But you see here that this is what many uh, commentators feel is the, the earliest creed uh, that we have uh, within the New Testament. This, so here, Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Now, obviously, this is uh, God's inspired word. He inspired and spoke it through Paul. But, at the same time, the nature of... You notice the way that's actually set out. It's actually in a creedal format. Right? It's, it's like a formula to help people understand what Jesus has done. So, it looks at two ways. Right? The two, two types of knowledge. Historical knowledge about Jesus coming as a man, dying, being obedient to death, going up to heaven. But at the same time, it tells us the implications, the theological understanding of that historical uh, work of God, that he was in very nature God, that now he is Lord and uh, we should, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, there's no point in us saying, well, you know, why do we say the Apostles' Creed once a month when we do the, uh, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion? Why don't we just read the Bible, right? Well, actually, the Creed is supposed to be like a formula to help us understand the condensed version, the important parts of what God has done, both in history and theologically. So why then, if we see that the creeds were used from the early, earliest church and the earliest believers, why is it they needed to form these creeds or formulas? Well, I think that there are two fundamental reasons. And, uh, okay, next slide. Okay, the, the, the first, uh, 
See, these are just, they're very cryptic, but you understand that as I go along. The first reason is because I think the, the church, as it passed on the gospel from generation to generation, it wanted, first of all, to have like a theological compass to guide people to make sure that from generation to generation, they would always remain on course and not stray from it. Right? Because the early church was aware that you know, this is what is really important. You need to hold on to these facts and don't get you know, swayed by false teaching and uh, false uh, uh, you know, apostles and false uh, teachers and all that sort of stuff. Keep to these things. So we know that the Apostles' Creed, um, the earliest forms of the Apostles' Creed were, uh, were actually formulated by the mid-2nd century. Okay, so like 100 plus AD. The next generation on from the Apostles, right, the Apostolic Fathers, already people were using something like the Apostles' Creed when people were being baptized to make sure that they understood what they were actually believing. Okay, now the second reason why the creeds are so important and as they were used in history was because they were a bit like, a, like out of bound markers, right? Okay, so basically, this creed formed like the basics of the Christian faith. And if you went outside of it, or if you believed something which contradicted this body of belief, then it was actually a warning to you that you were going outside what the Bible is saying, you are going outside what the core markers of the Christian faith were. Okay, so uh, the creeds were used in those two ways. One is like a compass, another one like an out-of-bounds marker. Now, we've been using the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed is actually the oldest creed uh, that we have used, and it's the most widely used creed of all, uh, that are used in all the churches. Now, how did the Apostles' Creed uh, come about? We're not really sure ourselves. Uh, there's a popular legend, which is obviously not true, uh, which says that each apostle was asked to add one line to the Apostles' Creed. Right? So, uh, the Apostle Peter said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. You know, then the Apostle Andrew said, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? And then James said, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you know, so on and so forth. But obviously, I don't think that's true, right? But we do know that right from the very beginning, uh, in the generation after the apostles, people were using these creeds when people were getting baptized. And uh, the Apostles' Creed, as we know it, uh, this is the next slide, in the form that we have today, was actually widely used in the church already by the 8th century, that's 700 AD, right? Okay? So, uh, this looks familiar. I think we made a few changes to modernize it at, uh, in our church and also because, uh, to clarify some misunderstanding. But, this is what we're going to be looking at today. And I thought that since we read it once a month, it would be really helpful if we read it now and uh, try to understand it first, absorb it as a whole, then I'll explain it to you. Okay, so pretend that I'm leading the service today. So let's, let's, re let's read this together. And then after I've explained it, I want you to read it again and then see whether the impact is different. Okay, so let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay, let's look at the first element of it. Next slide. Okay? Which is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, I want you to notice first that it focuses really on two elements of God, the Father. Okay? So, if you want to be a Christian, the first thing that we have to see is God is the Almighty. Uh, what is the Bible trying to? I mean, sorry, what the creed is trying to tell us is what the Bible tells us that there is only one God, and He is Almighty. There are not many, many, many gods, and we sort of worship all of them, but we only worship one God, and He is Almighty. He is powerful and sovereign. Okay, in Isaiah chapter forty-five, it says, "I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that the, the rising from the rising of the sun." To the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Now this is a key foundational belief if you want to call yourself a Christian. You must believe that there is only God and He is Almighty. Right? Now I remember when I was in Australia, I tried to evangelize a Japanese student and he told me he was a Christian. But after talking to him for a while, uh, I realized that actually he worshipped other gods as well. He worshipped gods of Shinto, he was a Buddhist at the same time. And I said, look, you know, you can't call yourself a Christian and worship other gods because God, God is almighty. Uh, when we went to Vietnam, just a few weeks ago in Da Nang, the student workers were telling us that some of the Catholic churches there, they actually combine the worship of God with ancestor worship. Now, obviously, this, this cannot work. Biblically, you cannot worship God and another idol or another god. And that's the, that's the first principle that we see when we look at the Apostles' Creed. God, the Father, Almighty, right? Now, how do we know that God is, the Father is Almighty? Well, it says there, next slide. Oops, oh, well, too late. Anyway, it says that He is the creator of heaven and earth. So, remember how I said two types of knowledge are important? Historical knowledge and the theological understanding of its implications. Well, God is the Almighty God because He has created heaven and earth. Right, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. See, this phrase, creator of heaven and earth, safeguards the important truth that we serve an Almighty God. Now, if if God himself was just almighty creator of heaven and earth, then our relationship with God would be one of uh, an unapproachable relationship. You know, because God is so formidable, he's so scary, right? But notice, uh, next slide, it doesn't say that. He doesn't say that I believe in God, the almighty creator of heaven and earth. It says, I believe in God, the Father almighty. So even though God is this powerful almighty God, he is also our Father now the word here, father, literally means the word like uh, papa, or dad, or daddy, right? Except less informal. But it shows us that this powerful God on one hand is also very close to us. He is like our father, he is like our dad, except not so informal, right? And that's what we, we, we recognize when we pray the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Because when we pray the Lord's Prayer, next slide, <coughs> we pray... Our Father in heaven. And then it says there later in verse 14 and 15, Your heavenly Father will forgive you if you do not forgive 
mend their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So what the Apostles' Creed attempts to do in the first line is to, sh- to get us to focus on God the Father and help us to see that at one hand, God the Father is really powerful and He is almighty and sovereign God, but at the same time, He is our Father. Now this knowledge is really important. I was reading a book recently and said, you know, why is it so many Christians are discontented? Why are we so discontent with God? And he said, that this writer was saying that the part of the reason is because we do not know our relationship with God. The mark of a true Christian is where he or she understands the reality of your new family in heaven. See, the mark of a true Christian is to be able to understand the reality that God is our Father. The Creator of heaven and earth is like our Father. If that is true, then why should we be discontent? Because we've been given this great privilege. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Now the second part is, next slide, is about Jesus, right? And it says, I believe also in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, He shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now here you see a lot of historical details, right? The birth, the suffering, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation, and the return to judgment. Now what do these historical details really show us about Jesus? Why did did the early apostolic fathers feel that all these details are so important for us? I think that if we understand these elements, it actually teaches us why Jesus is so important to us. The first thing is, it tells us that Jesus was fully human. Right? That's, why, that's why it says, if you see up there, He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was born of a woman. And not only that, He suffers as a man, He dies as a man, He is buried as a man. See, throughout history, people have sometimes mistakenly thought that Jesus is more than just human. You know, he's like a subhuman. He's like maybe more spirit than human. Maybe he's like a superhuman. You know, sometimes people think of Jesus, and who do they think of Jesus? They think of Jesus as the perfect baby Jesus in the manger who never cries, never goes to the toilet, and never catches a cold. But Jesus is perfectly human, just like you and I. He was born of a woman, he can suffer. He can get hungry, he can sweat, he has body odor, he has headaches. He's fully human in every way. Now in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, next slide, it tells us why it's so important to affirm that Jesus was fully human. Now, okay, now we get a bit technical, but if you grasp this point, it will blow your mind, okay? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those 
who all their lives were held in slavery by the, their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. <clears throat> For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he, he might make atonement for the sins of the people. <clears throat> now, what we learn in the Bible is that all of mankind is totally depraved. We are totally sinful before God, and we all deserve total condemnation and judgment. Agreed? We agree to that, isn't it? Therefore, man's sin, therefore man should be punished, isn't it? So therefore, the punishment for man's sin cannot be paid by an angel, neither can it be paid for by a creature like a chicken or a cow. Man must pay for man's sin. And therefore, that's why it's so important for Jesus to become fully man. Because by being fully man, he actually is our representative to take all of mankind's sins on his body. Can you see what I'm saying? See, it is no good if we just get an uh, animal to pay for our sins or an angel because the angel or the animal doesn't represent mankind. Only man can pay for mankind's sin. And therefore, Jesus completely becomes like man. He is fully man, 100% man, to make atonement for the sins of mankind. But at the same time, we also see that the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus is fully God. He is fully divine. Many Christians do not understand this. I remember speaking to a Christian, they said, you mean Jesus is, is like God? I said, yeah, he is, he is as God, as God the Father. He is fully divine in his substance and his nature. Now we can see it again in the Apostles' Creed because the word Son there is in capital letters and the word Lord there is in capital letters which is commonly only used to God the Father. But more than that, it says that he was conceived, where is it? see when I'm upside down. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right? So, Jesus is actually conceived divinely. He is fully God and he returns home to heaven and sits at God's right hand. So, Jesus is fully human but he's also fully divine. Now, why must God be, why must Jesus be fully human and fully divine? Well, we've already learned that Jesus must be fully man in order to pay for mankind's sin, but he must be fully divine because if he is not divine, he can only pay for his own sin. He can only pay for maybe another person's sin. You see, if I died for, for other people, maybe I can die for one other person or maybe for myself. But because Jesus is fully divine, he is totally sinless up to God's standard. He is totally righteous up to God's standard. And therefore, his death satisfies God's perfect justice. And again, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Now there have been many, oh, sorry, is it up there? Yep. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 
See, Jesus is fully man and fully God, and he needs to be fully man and fully God. By his being fully divine, he can pay for the sins of the whole world. By being fully human, he can die for the sins of mankind. Now, I remember meeting some Christians before, and sometimes I asked them, you know, I said, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And sometimes they say, well, I'm not sure whether I'll go to heaven, I'm not sure whether I'll be saved. Now, what is the problem? The problem is a lack of understanding of Jesus, isn't it? A lack of understanding of who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is fully human, then he is able to take your place, fully able to represent you before God and die for you. If he is fully divine, then his death has infinite value and infinite worth. And whatever sin that you've done, even a minute before you died, and you did something wrong, even then, Jesus' death, because he is fully divine, can pay for your sin. So even if a, be- a meteor were to hit BTPC right now, right? Because we know that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, we will know that we will all be saved if we put our faith in Him. So we believe in God, the Father Almighty. We believe in Jesus, the Son, fully human, fully divine. But what else do we believe in? Next slide. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, again, last week, remember uh, why I was preaching on the Trinity. And the Trinitarian understanding is, is essential to, to, to call yourself a Christian to be saved. Right? You need to believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, uh, for some people, the three things that you really believe in are not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but what they believe in is Father, Son, and Mother Mary. Right? If, if, you think of, if you were to go to some Catholics and ask them, who are the most important people for your salvation? They would say Father, Son, Mary. Because they believe that Mary intercedes for them and has a part to play in their salvation. Now, if you look at the, the Apostles' Creed, you know, you look at it carefully up here, you see that actually the belief in Mary or the role of Mary in your salvation is, is, is totally irrelevant, insignificant, trivial, unimportant, isn't it? It's only, Mary is only mentioned in how Jesus was born, isn't it? Okay? Not how we are saved. And the reason is actually because right from its very beginning, right from the New Testament, right from the Apostles' Creed, which was written very early on in the church, Mary is not important for our salvation. If you look at his, history, and actually I found, I, I, I really enjoyed church history in theological college. When you look at church history, you understand so many things better, right? The belief that Mary has a part to play in your salvation is actually a very late development in the church. So if you look up here on this slide, Right? Okay, don't, don't, okay, so I, I, a bit of history here. Remember I said the Apostles' Creed was first developed around 150 AD? Okay? The generation after the Apostles died. Okay? So it was only 431 AD uh, that the Council of Ephesus said that Mary was uh, the mother of God as well as the mother of Jesus Christ. Well, it's kind of a, like a recognition that Jesus is both God and man, right? So no problems there. But it was only from, say, 1,400 onwards, that people started to raise up Mary as somebody that we really had to look to for our salvation. So, 1,477 AD, 
uh, Pope's, sorry, his name's not Pope's, it's Pope, I think. <laughs> sorry. Pope, Pope Sixtus, the, I can't read that. The 12, okay. The 4th, okay. The 4th, um, said Mary was immaculately conceived, that means she was free from all sin at birth. Okay, then in 1883 uh, AD, Pope Leo the 13th, is it? Eight, sorry, eight. Mary was the huh? Thirteen, sorry, thirteen, sorry, thirteen. Um, Mary was the mediator of graces. That means that she actually brings grace into your life, forgiveness, okay, things like that, salvation. In nineteen fifty A.D., Pope Pius the twelfth uh, said Mary was never died. She was uh, bodily assumed into heaven. So you can see that actually, uh, the, the the worship of Mary. The dependence of Mary for salvation is a very late development in the church. And actually, if you use the Apostles' Creed, which reflects what the New Testament says, uh, there is no, there is no, this is out of bounds, isn't it? This is the out of bounds that the Apostles' Creed is warning us about. Because you don't need Mary for salvation. You need only those things that we talked about. Right? We only, you only need uh, belief in God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Always remember the Trinitarian belief is always what counts. And Mary has no part to play in our salvation. Then the next part, uh, next slide. Okay, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the Communion of Saints. I know that uh, in, our, in all the recent versions, this Catholic is removed and, and replaced by universal. Because that's what it literally means. Uh, it's not the Roman Catholic Church. It means... The, the church universal. And what that recognizes is uh, the church is made up of local bodies, but all those who subscribe to the common bond of the teaching of the New Testament and the Old Testament, the teachings of God's word, faith in Jesus for salvation, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are all one universal or one Catholic church. And uh, when you ask yourself, why, why is it so important that they put this belief in? It, it's because it reflects what the Bible says, isn't it? That actually, um, there's a great temptation among all of us to be narrow-minded, provincial, insular, and inward-looking, and think that our church is like, that's it. But biblically speaking, it doesn't matter if people speak different languages, they look different from us. If they hold on to God's teaching the Bible... They believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. They believe in God the Father, the Almighty. They believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then we are all one church, one family. So in Colossians chapter 3, next slide, uh, Paul says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Uh, in verse 15, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Okay, so that's what uh, it means by when it says the Holy Catholic Church. Now, at the same time, why is it, does it go on to say the communion of saints? Uh, well, why does it say communion of saints, isn't it? Well, if the Holy Catholic Church speaks of everybody today who is a Christian, not divided by race or language, or geographical realities, then the communion of saints actually looks at it from a, from a time perspective. It actually says that we as believers belong not just to a big family 
today like this, here, with all the people, all the Christians around the world, but we also believe that we belong to a family which stretches beyond our time to all the Christians that existed in the past and all the believers that existed in the past. So like, we had the responsive reading. Right, so we are part of a family who calls Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as part of our, our church or family. Uh, John Calvin is part of our family. Uh, you know, believers in, 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 uh, you know, who died centuries ago, they are also part of the communion of saints. And we belong to this great, big family of God. Now, I think that this is really important because it goes against the temptation uh, to ignore what the Bible says, that we are this big one, big family made up of the body of Christ. Because right? theologically, that's who we are. We are part of this big body of Christ. Uh, somebody was telling me about uh, these missions in Cambodia. And in Cambodia, there are a lot of different mission organizations. Different churches from different countries all go to Cambodia to do missions. And uh, this Singaporean was telling me how the competition in Cambodia is, is quite tough. So what the different mission organizations do is they go to, they actually poach um, uh, like the local Cambodian staff from each other. And they say, oh, you know, how much are the Singaporeans paying you? Oh, okay, we'll double that, right? So you can't work for us. And then some other mission organization will go, okay, you know, you're working, okay, you know, we'll pay you more. But you see, that, that's, that's completely against what the Bible is saying, completely against what the Apostles' Creed is saying, isn't it? Because if we are one family, one Catholic, holy Catholic church, one communion of saints, then we're not corporations competing against one another. They should actually be working with one another, isn't it? Uh, I was um, talking to a member of another church uh, in Singapore and, and over lunch one day, and he was also saying to me how he was sad because in the church that he was in, uh, every dis- decision that the church made always surrounded what does it, how does this decision benefit my local church? Right, if, if, we, if we do this endeavor, we spend this money, how would it affect our reputation? What is the bottom line for our church? What gain would there be for our church? And that's how they determine every decision. And my friend was saying, you know, but that's, that's really, and this guy was a missionary, he said, but that's so against what the Bible is saying because they shouldn't be looking at just how do we gain, how do we benefit our small church, but how does it benefit the family, the whole holy Catholic church of God. So the last part, is, uh, next slide, the forgiveness, I believe, and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, <clears throat> I think that if you want to uh, memorize any part of the Apostles' Creed, then this, I think, is really the ground zero of Christian faith, isn't it? Because if you are to ask someone, give me one sentence, which explains what a Christian is about, what the Bible is about, then I think this is, the logic of this is impeccable, isn't it? Because really, you, if you say, I believe in Jesus, why do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, for the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. I mean, that's, it makes sense in so many ways, isn't it? Because as we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven. We also believe in the resurrection of the body because Jesus is risen again and we rise with Him. And He's promised us life everlasting. Uh, in terms of chronology, it makes sense. Because we are forgiven now, we will rise in the body and we will live forever. And this is like 
the bare essence, if you want to boil down the whole of your Christian faith down into one sentence, then this is it. What do you believe in as a Christian? Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? It's because of the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, I began by saying that many Christians today are very heavy on emotions and entertainment and passion, but kind of very weak on knowledge, isn't it? Now, I I imagine if I went to speak to some of these uh, Christians who don't have good Bible knowledge and just see that church is about feelings and emotions and passions and entertainment. If you go to them and you ask them, why do you believe in Jesus? I don't know whether they'll come up with this sentence. I believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Uh, if you go to ask someone who goes to prosperity gospel, you ask them, why do you believe in Jesus? They might say, well, I believe in Jesus because I believe that Jesus will give me an abundant and blessed life filled with success. And maybe you go to a Catholic person and you say, why do you believe in Jesus? You say, well, I believe in Jesus because Jesus has forgiven me, but I still have to do all these works that the church has asked me to do. If you go to a Pentecostal charismatic Christian who doesn't understand his Bible very well, you say, why do you believe in Jesus? Because Jesus gives me the power of the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues, to be healed, and to do all sorts of miracles. But that is not the heart of Christianity, you see. That is not the core of why Jesus came in history. Why Jesus came was to bring forgiveness of sins so that we may rise again in the resurrection of the body and we may have life everlasting. See, so let's not fall into the trap of going and chasing after things, uh, superstition or some counterfeit faith or false teaching. But let us use the Apostles' Creed and really just examine ourselves and say, do we really understand uh, the Bible as it is expressed in the Apostles' Creed? And to see that maybe we need to realign ourselves or maybe we need to change our thinking. Because really, the Apostles' Creed in history was the earliest creed. I think it really reflects very faithfully what the Bible is teaching us. So why don't we uh, all stand together now and let's read the Apostles' Creed together and with uh, hopefully new understanding. Now you can come for the second service. Uh, And really affirm what we believe in and why it's so important for us to affirm all these things. uh, God the Almighty, God our Father, Jesus is human, Jesus is divine, Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, Forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So let's read it together. Okay. Uh, let me get back to my page. Okay, here it is. Okay. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Okay, please be seated.